There are huge numbers of people in this country who don't know history. But how, if you don't know history, how disabled you are. If you didn't have any history, you might never believe what you were told. If you knew some history, you would know how often the American people have been lied to. You're listening to Question Culture History Edition with Brian, Steve, and Larnette. On these monthly episodes, we will be discussing American history using Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States as our guide. On this episode, we will be discussing the expansion of the United States into Native American territory. How's it going, guys? Hey, what's going on, Brian? Hi, everybody. It's Lornette Vestal. And uh, you can check out my book, Even of Faders, in stores now. Uh, and also indie book publishers and uh, major book publishers also. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Evolving Man LBV. And you can also follow me on Facebook. Um, you can check out the Evolving Man Project, which is the website that dives deep into question culture uh, topic, topics and discussions and also find more out about my work in the community and um, yeah um, other discussions about life in general so check out the Evolved Man Project and uh, yep hi everybody hi everybody this is Steven you cannot follow me anywhere <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, Steve, you don't like social media? <laughs> nah. Nah, you man. Don't like the, don't you don't do like that. the I don't play that you game. You don't like the leftist Twitter beasts beast over which podcaster is um, you know, is is really about that life and how the squad will like one day save us. All they got to do is, you know, remove their head out of Joe Biden's ass. Dude, if you want a front row seat to watch the left eat itself, like go on Twitter. Like it is just cr- hilarious to me all the like inner bickering on there about like stupid shit that like doesn't even matter it's it 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 helps you understand why the left people you know who all consider themselves progressive or leftist can never like get on the same page to 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 fight the system (laughs) um all right but uh as always on this episode we have a really uplifting uh topic genocide (laughs) um so i think you know maybe people who listen to this who weren't like me and don't have a degree in history they have probably heard by now about the genocide of the native americans how the country was built upon it um but no don't know very much about the details of what actually happened so hopefully um you know we can provide that on this episode uh and so basically it's what ha- what's happening is by the end of the 1700s after the american revolution war um white immigrants from europe continue to flood into the country um in 1790 there were 3.9 million americans who live lived mostly within the 50 miles of the Atlantic Ocean. By 1830, there were 13 million, and 4.5 million had gone west of the Appalachian Mountains towards the Mississippi. So what what happened was they had, you know, a lot of Native American nations and communities had already started to move west once whites started showing up along the coast, but now they were starting to be pushed even further west. Um, In 1820, 120,000 Native Americans lived um, east of the Mississippi, by 1844, there would be fewer than 30,000. So, you know, we're going to discuss why that happened. Um, and what I really like about Howard Zinn's book, um, you know, when uh, when history is taught kind of in, in high schools and grade schools, it, it's kind of, you know, it takes on a, uh, uh, like a propaganda kind of thing where everything's just 
given in these terms of black and white, and if an event happened, it's from the perspective of perspective of the wealthy elite of the country, and it's kind of designed to make America look as good as possible. And what I like about Howard Zinn's book, and especially this chapter, was he goes into detail about all the different things that happen to the variety of people. You know, a single event can happen, but that one event can can affect people in different ways depending on who they are. So he does a really good job. You know, there's no there's a bunch of different Native American nations. They all dealt with this situation in their own ways. Even people within those nations um, dealt with it in their own ways. So I really like in this chapter how he you know, just kind of does the best he can, you know, considering what he's got to fit it all in about a thousand pages of showing the different, um, you know, what each individual nation did, what the, the Native Americans did within those nations. And so I just appreciate that about this book and about this chapter, especially. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to add before we actually get into it? Yeah, I just, um, so I don't really watch many mainstream media uh, outlets. But sometimes I'll watch um, Breaking Points, which used to be uh, The Hill with Crystal and Sagir. And Sagir always has like, he always has shots at Howard Zinn for some reason. Well, I guess because Howard Zinn told history from the perspective of working class. Which is really funny with Sagir because I guess he just thinks uh, Howard Zinn is some crazy leftist. But Howard Zinn, <laughs> he fought in World War II and... You know, he was he was a pilot, so he was he understood like his role in U.S. imperialism, and at least World War II was fighting against the Nazis. But still, he's part of the military machine, and um, you know, realize that, and and years later, become an educator historian, and kind of really tells this perspective of history from those who are not the so-called winners, um, because we like to think of our founding fathers and these mythical histor- historical figures in United States history has these, you know, titans who were in some cases we kind of treat the founding fathers almost as deities. It's really weird. And and you find out the father of our nation, George Washington, he was such a terrible he was he was a slave owner, but he was one of the worst slave owners. He was so bad that the other slave owners thought he was cruel. So that 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 tells you something. <laughs> that's like the, that's like basically being a, a, you know the, the, on death row with a bunch of serial killers, and then you come to death row, and the other serial killers like, oh my god, we tell stories about you to scare the shit out of each other. <laughs> so you got to be a pretty shitty human being. So I, I do like the fact that this people's history is told from the perspective of those who are, are not usually perspectives are not really shared. So Howard Zinn was really ahead of his time. Because I know nowadays it's about equity, inclusion, and diversity, and we do that on surface levels in many ways. And sometimes some people really get deep into it. But Howard Zinn did this. This book is what came out in the '90s, so way ahead yeah, of his time. He was definitely a, he was definitely part of a revolution that started reviewing history in a way that wasn't just from the perspective of the leaders. And, you know, how it affected, you know, normal people. And by normal people, I mean 99% of the population. That isn't, you know, the 1% and have crazy amounts of con- concentrated wealth. Um, I actually could really relate to that because we never talked about it. But he, you know, started the book talking about how, or maybe I just remember this from interviews he gave where he was, you know, flying bombers during World War II and dropping bombs. And, you know, at some point through the war, he had the thought of, you know, I'm sure like every soldier, he was just, you know, you're fighting for America, you're fighting the evil Nazi empire. Um, 
and he just started to question like who he was dropping these bombs on you know and like trying to see things from their perspective and, and you know kind of take a step back and objectively look at what's going on and what he's a part of um and i think in a way world war ii was kind of my catalyst to getting into history as well um my grandma my grandpa was uh dead by by the time i was born but my grandma lived in germany during world war ii and would always talk about what they had to do um you know, she had to flee her home and, and, and things like that. And, she, you know, she told me all these stories and I was talking, you know, she talked about my grandpa who she loved to death and just, you know, had the utmost respect for I thought he was the nicest man in the world. Um, but he fought for, you know, the G- German army during World War Two. So early on, I had to reconcile in my brain, you know, in school, I'm being taught that Germans, you know, were the, the evil empire. Hitler was, you know, they, you know, the Nazis were the most evil thing to ever happen in the whole world. Yet I had this family who my grandma, who was the nicest lady in the world, spoke highly of my grandpa. So, I, my, you know, I had to reconcile how can this evil empire also have these human beings who I, you know, I consider, I know for a fact are, you know, wouldn't harm a fly, um, you know, at least with my grandma. So that kind of got me going down a path of history. And ultimately, I learned about how systems um, kind of control people and put people in situations um, so yeah, I, I guess in, in a lot of ways, World War II um, was kind of a catalyst for a lot of people getting interested in, in history. And I, you know, I kind of think hopefully 9-11 kind of did that for a lot of Americans. Um, it was kind of easy to ignore the rest of the world, but I, I think you and me, Lornette, talked about that, how 9-11 kind of woke us up to all the the stuff that the United States had been doing around the world that wasn't, you know, broadcast on mainstream uh, TV. Yeah. And, um, like Howard's then, you know, I was in the military and, and I, I talked about this ad nauseum, but that was really kind of my connecting the dots from the neighborhood. I grew up on this South side of Chicago. And I think Brian and I, and, um, we talked about this on our first episode and, and Steve, you can feel free to chime in about kind of our, our backgrounds, but you know, um, Brian talked about, you talked about kind of growing up in the suburbs, and I, I talked about growing up, I guess what we call it back in our day, the inner city, and lots of um, gangs, drugs, poverty, uh, over oversaturation of police, underperforming schools, lack, lack of resources, lack of opportunities. And I, you know, during my time in the service, and especially at the start of the Iraq war, which, you know, the, the news is all about Afghanistan, which I, I think is crazy because we just had a presidential election and they didn't even talk about Afghanistan. And now it's all over the news. And it's really all over the news because these weapon contractors are paying these news networks. They'll be like, we can't pull out. We got to. What about women's rights? And it's like, well, what about women's rights right here in the United States? We, we just see what happened in Texas. <laughs> and, you know, we, we can go ad nauseum. We can go a whole episode about women in the military in the United States and how they're, they're treated and, and how they're targeted and systematic um, uh, sexism against them. But like how I was in, I had my kind of political awakening while uh, being a service member and understanding that I was the, the oppression and the injustice I saw in my community growing up was connected to the the craziness that I saw on the global scale. Um, and it made me finally put connect the dots and understand how these systems work. So um, kudos to Howard Zinn for kind of writing this you know book and putting this out there for the masses and, and showing that this 
history is not always what you think it is and it's way more you know interesting fascinating disturbing sad tragic beautiful than what's taught to us in school like George Washington shot down a cherry tree and he had wooden teeth and he was such a strong yeah. man and Andrew Jackson was just he was a he was a man of the people at his inauguration it was, it was a house party at the White House and he turned up and it's like he was a psychopath who you know murdered native people and you know forced them off their land as we'll get to later in this chapter so that's my piece and uh sticking to it all right so um after the revolutionary war you know great britain signed the peace treaty with america um and they all went home but during the american revolution almost all native american nations fought on the side of the british so they were already home they didn't have a home to leave and go to so what they actually did was just continue fighting the united states um, and for a short time, it kind of reached this balance. They were, you know, the Native American nations were so good at guerrilla warfare, and the United States Army was depleted from having to fight the British. So for a short time, they really were kind of at this balanced standpoint where not a lot of um, westward expansion was going on because the U.S. didn't just didn't have the resources to help the frontiers people fight Native Americans. And the up to that point, the Native Americans had actually done a pretty good job of fighting against them. So... There was kind of the standstill for a short time. Um, during the first George Washington's presidency, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State. And in 1791, he said uh, that where Indians lived within state boundaries, they should not be interfered with and that the government should re- should remove white settlers who tried to encroach on them. But Ooh, we know we know that it, that was just they're talking out his ass. <laughs> Yeah, that was a very temporary thing because what ends up happening is capitalism gets involved. And, you know, for as much shit about, you know, the the rich and wealthy that, that we like to talk about them on this podcast, I, I don't – it's important to understand that it's not that rich people are innately evil or a separate species or anything. They are human beings that are just responding to their environment like we all do. And what the real motivating factor for this Western expansion and the genocide of the Native Americans was capitalism. Over more over time, more and more white immigrants came pouring in, and they discovered there was just more money to be had. So Thomas Jefferson, along with all the other presidents that would come after, flipped real quick on this issue. And you know, having well, seen, it was about wealth creation, Brian, but it's also about land expansion. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, well, land equals wealth. Exactly. That's what you turn into wealth. Exactly. They see dollar signs. So uh, Howard Zinn says, uh, but as whites continued to move west- westward, the pressure on the na- national government increased. By the time Thomas Jefferson became president in 1800, there were 700,000 white settlers west of the mountains. They moved into Ohio, Indiana, Illinois in the north, into Alabama, Mississippi in the south. These whites outnumbered their Indians by, by about eight to one. Jefferson now committed the federal government to promote future removal of the Creek and Cherokee from Georgia. Aggressive activity against the Indians mounted in the Indian Territory under Governor William Henry Harrison, who would also become president. Um, And very early on, Jefferson would talk about, you know, agriculture, manufacture, civilization was a big buzzword that they would use at the time. You know, the presidents would say that 
the the Indians are uncivilized and we're bringing civilization to them when <laughs> <laughs> we're bringing you civilization yeah, right. by murdering you all. So you were civilized, goddammit. <laughs> right, right. So Howard then continues, uh, Indian removal, as it was politely called, was necessary for the opening of the vast American lands to agriculture, to commerce, to markets, to money, to the development of the modern capitalistic economy. Land was indispensable for all this, and after the revolution, huge sections of land were bought up by rich speculators, including George Washington and Patrick Henry. In North Carolina, rich tracts of lands belonging to Chickasaw Indians were put on sale, although the Chickasaws were among the few Indian tribes fighting on the side of the revolution, and a treaty had been signed to guarantee them that land. So we're not going to be able to cover all those situations, but over and over again, the United States government signed treaties with these Native American nations, and again and again they broke it. They, you know, between all the different nations, literally hundreds of times they were promised, all right, this is the last time we're going to ask you to move. This is your land. And again and again, they broke it. Continues to um, this day. Yeah. yeah, yeah very right, much so. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with like Standing Rock and stuff, like now they're now the, the few small bits of land we push them onto, we want to mm-hmm. run oil pipelines exactly. through there. So like we're going to finish off that genocide. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, stand in solidarity with the water protectors. Who are still fighting this uh, 500 year you know battle for on their own you know ancestral lands. So um, one of the things that kind of bothers me in my you know professional space is like you know we want to acknowledge the land land, land acknowledgments. Not per se that I, I don't want to acknowledge indigenous people who who lived on lived on the lands I I, I once lived in. It just seems like if we really want to like acknowledge the land, we fucking give it back to them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because I live in Georgia, this is uh, the, the the ancestral land of the Cherokee Nation and the uh, Creek Indians and or natives or or, or Creek Nation, um, and those indigenous people make a small fraction of the Georgia population today because they are all you know forced out uh, as we'll get to a little later on, and so it's like we'll give them give them their land back. <laughs> Instead of land acknowledgement, land back. So uh, we're, we're, ne- we're never going to do that. the very least but. we could do is not, yeah, the, or the very least we can do is not fucking build pipelines through their fucking land that they are on now, you know? It's it's just so disgusting. And that the, this, the whole Standing Rock thing was honestly like one of, I, that might have been the most depressed I ever was about something that didn't happen to me personally because... I don't know, I guess still a small part of me, even though I knew our history and everything, I was like, okay, that was in the past, we're trying to do better nowadays, but then you just see the scenes from Standing Rock and absolutely nothing has changed. We're finishing off the genocide of the Native Americans in my lifetime rather than trying to, you know, make amends for it. So it, it was, yeah, just disgusting on so I many also levels. Found, I found Standing Rock to be pretty inspiring, though, because I've never seen a, that was the most effective protest I've ever seen in my lifetime. Very true. Yeah, <laughs> I you're, you're right. I had that thought too. Um, I yeah, I had that thought. Like, damn. Now Which I'm, is why I'm, we should follow the lead of the Native American activists because they know what they're doing and they know how to actually perform effective activism. Exactly. Um, so, you know, lands expanding. People see uh, dollar signs, and um, <laughs> this is where uh, our boy Andrew Jackson comes on the scene. Um, 
John Donaldson, a state surveyor, ended up with 20,000 lakers of and of land near what is now Chattanooga. His son-in-law made 22 trips out to Nashville in 1795 for land deals. This was Andrew Jackson. Jackson was a land speculator, merchant, slave trader, and the most aggressive enemy of Indians in early American history. He became a hero of the War of Hero, quote unquote, of the War of 1812. Um, which was not as it was usually depicted in American textbooks as just a war against England for survival, but a war for the expansion of the of a new nation into Florida, into Canada, and into Indian territory. And I don't like to rank evil. I think it's all bullshit, but I don't know about you guys, but in my opinion, Andrew Jackson is like top five most evil presidents that we've ever had. Yeah, it's like and him, Reagan, Trump, yeah, Obama. Yes, I said Obama. <laughs> Bill Clinton, I would, I might have on there too, because he was like the definition of wolf and. Oh uh, yeah, but Nixon, it's a lot of contenders. That's the problem. Washington, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, yeah Nixon, now. yeah, right. Lincoln, even even Abraham right. Lincoln was an asshole. Like, I mean, and Andrew, but Andrew Jackson is like, like the top Andrew five. Jackson is on our fucking. He's on our he's, money. He's on he's our on twenty dollars. If bill. I was an indigenous person, I would not want to use the twenty dollars bill. I understand why, because every time you open up this twenty dollars bill, and there's a great book about Andrew uh, Jackson called. American Lion. I'm actually looking at it on my bookshelf, um, and talks about his lifetime. I mean, he, <laughs> I mean, he was he was crazy. He was crack cash shit. I mean, he was in multiple duels and, and shot <laughs> shot two people in the duels. <laughs> uh, he basically I mean, you used the, the natives to help him win the war 1812 and become a war hero in that one, and then the same people who helped him win the war 1812 um, against the Spanish to expand it to uh, Florida. He um, slaughtered and then had forcibly removed off that set land because he was such a great guy. And I mean, this is a textbook to get example of one man's freedom fighter as another person's terrorist. If you consider, if you treat Native Americans as human beings and as people, and you read the things that Andrew Jackson did and said, there he was he was Hitler. <laughs> you know, he was a genocidal maniac to these people. He wanted to just completely annihilate them. So it's just wild, yeah, that these people, you know, the, the mo- and as we'll get into, you know, this wasn't, not all white people were like Andrew Jackson. There were people that were against Indian removal, as it was called. So it's just a- another example of how we're led by the, the least among us. Our leaders, our, our wealthy elites are the most despicable human wasn't beings. Wasn't it Waldo, Ralph, Ralph, Waldo Ralph Emerson who was... Um, on the side of the indigenous people and in, in, against this, um, basically the expansion expansion westward, which meant you know stealing land from indigenous people and forcing them off of it or murdering them, and in many cases not just murder but rape and torture. So kind of basically what Columbus did to Hispaniola, or uh, known as Haiti in Dominican Republic now. And so. Um what uh, you know Howard Zinn begins to talk about is now how different Native American groups started to respond to this threat. Um, there was um, a Shawnee chief uh, who I'm going to read his quote here, where he was he started to recognize early on that all Native American nations would have to start working together uh, to resist this if they had any chance at survival. He said, "The way and the only way to check and to stop this evil." is for all the red men to unite in claiming a common and equal right in the land, as it was at first and should be yet, 
for it was never divided, but, but belonged to all for, for use of each, that no part has a right to sell even to each other, much less to strangers, those who want all and will not do with less. So, you know, he recognized the, the need for unity, but then there were also some, you know, Native Americans who saw the writing on the wall and had already, you know, by this point, a lot of Native Americans had already, they weren't living like their ancestors were 100 years ago. They already started to adapt into capitalism. And it, it as capitalism does, it, it finds a way to div- divide. Um, Howard Zinn writes, the Creeks, who occupied most of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, were divided among themselves. Some were willing to adopt the civilization of the white man in order to live in peace. Others, insisting on their land and their culture, were called Red Sticks. The Red Sticks, in 1830, massacred 250 people at Fort Mims, whereupon Jackson's troops burned down a Creek village, killed men, women, and children. Jackson established the tactic of promising rewards in land and plunder. So, you know, early on, um, it's already, you know, you can kind of see how capitalism has already, even though, you know, a lot of these Native American nations tried to resist it. Yeah. It's impossible. I mean, that's a complaint I hear a lot when you criticize capitalism. We're like, oh, if you hate capitalism so much, then why are you buying stuff? You know, and it's like, it's impossible if you're alive and living within a capitalist system, it's impossible to not play by the, the rules. World is a, is a, we're the world is forced. Means death. We have no choice but to be in this capitalist system. That's the, that's the problem right there. We are forced into it. It was other ways of thinking and running civilizations. This shit isn't natural. It evolved. And many Native American societies had their own you know ways. And this isn't to deify the Native Americans and put them on this pedestal have... Um, but you know, each each nation of peoples had their own culture and society, and how they you know created their own economic systems, and which was you know based on bartering and things like that. So capitalism happened to just uh, went out thanks to the group that colonized the globe, and in in essence, forced it on everybody because it basically kind of like my man Immortal Technique said, uh, showed you know indigenous people of the world over that they colonized. That, you know, land is valuable in the ideal of like one person or one family or one group of people owning most of the land, if not all of it. And everybody else working as serfs and that people were worth, you know, were basically commodities like they can be bought and sold. Well, all these ideas was really kind of foreign to most indigenous peoples uh, before the, the age of European colonization, because the land was just the land. You know, they shared the land. They lived on the land. They needed the land to survive the idea that you know a human being could be bought and sold um one thing we talk about um is slavery and in in these native american um, nations um slaves were integrated into those respective communities where you know slavery of the american chattel slavery of black americans uh, or you know enslaved africans at the time they were never to be included (laughs) as part of the system um even if they bought their freedom it was, you know, uh, we had separate but equal laws that came into place to separate blacks and whites. And the one, the ridiculous one drop rule. So you can have someone who looks like Mariah Carey, but to this day, it's still considered like a black woman. It's like, <laughs> how is that even possible? So versus like um, um, the, the gorgeous. Uh, 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 God, um, why am I forgetting her name? <laughs> 
Who you have the hots for, Larnet? Uh, uh, from Black Panther, who played Black Panther's girlfriend. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Who uh, Lupita, about, yeah. Lupita. Yeah, yes. right, right, right. Um, beautiful, oh. beautiful. Yeah, well, it just shows the insanity. So, of but like, like, her and Mariah Carey in this country are considered black because Mariah Carey, I believe, her dad is like half black. <laughs> and it's right. like, what? It just shows the insanity. Yeah, like you say, you know how like uh, racism is a scientific fallacy, but a social reality. It just goes to show the insanity of like trying to divide people up that way and how silly it is. Um, Insane, but predictable, given the context of our economic system. Exactly. I can kind of like maybe see some of our listeners cringing every time Brian blames something on capitalism. (laughs) Just because it's like, because we haven't really explained why the mechanisms of capitalism lead to this sort of social behavior which i know we talked about hopefully doing in a subsequent podcast like a more direct analysis of not just capitalism but other economic systems yeah that that's definitely um lornette and i are going to do an episode on capitalism coming up here and then i know me and steve were talking about after we get through the history kind of discussing going in depth about how you know, maybe doing another spinoff and talking about how economics. I mean, I hope to people who listen to this. Yeah, you might cringe if this is your first time listening to this podcast, but I hope you're starting to see based on all the other topics we get how economics is at the root. Economics is a system. It's a game that we're all playing and the game has a set of rules and it naturally leads to these consequences. And the game is also rigged by those with the most power and uh, wealth. Exactly. Capitalism is really a Ponzi scheme oh, at yeah. its core. Yeah. So it's, but these you know, the, but these indigenous peoples who occupied the the western you know area of the of the country, and with that expansion, um, it was all about it was a land grab for 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 wealth, and also, um, this expansion was justified by manifest destiny, and we were just stronger. We and we were using the land the proper way. So Andrew Jackson's role in the Native American removal can't be overstated. He he was he is responsible for the deaths of untold um, men, women, and children. Yeah, men, women, I mean, and children who who at one time were his allies, and that's that's the that's the most evil thing about it. It's like he he used he used these people for his own personal political gain, and and then broke the treaties and screwed them over. At, after afterward well that's the hilarious thing about the whole situation even to nowadays is that's true for every situation is we should be working together and cooperating but instead we're dividing and you know being separate and it's all to our own detriment even if you are some wealthy person because ultimately we're destroying the planet so yeah your money's not gonna be in shit when there's no fucking air to breathe Mm-hmm. Very uplifting um, uh, stuff we're talking about here, but fellas, <laughs> right on par for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's inspiring um, and uplifting, and get your chakras aligned, baby, because we're, we're trying to increase positivity to you. By the way, I think all three of us are drinking through this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we all deal with trauma in our own ways. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, look, I, I, I'm on vacation officially uh, as of 5 p.m. today, so I'm drinking in celebration of that. So if you have not taken your vacation, nice. if you want a few fortunate working people in this country to get some vacation days, please take them. The summer's almost over. 
Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's a staycation because you don't want to get um, the Delta, Delta, and I ain't talking about Delta Airlines to travel. <laughs> <laughs> you could get Delta on Delta. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right, so I mean, uh, Lornette touched on it, but uh, you know, Jackson's genocidal ways, and um, so Howard Zinn, you know, elaborates on exactly what he was doing. It was basically kill people and take their shit. Um, so Howard Zinn writes, um, Jackson became an, a uh, extremely popular in the nation when, in 1814, he fought the Battle of Horseshoe Bend against a thousand Creeks and killed 800 of them, uh, with few casualties on his side. His white troops had failed in a frontal attack on the Creeks, but the Cherokees with him promised governmental friendship if they joined the war, swam the river, came up behind the Creeks, and won the battle for Jackson. When the war ended, Jackson and his friend and friends of his began buying up seized Creek lands. He got himself appointed treaty commissioner and dictated a treaty which took away half of the land of the Creek Nation. So... I mean, that's just a perfect example of what Lornette was talking about, where he, you know, he used the Cherokees to, you know, promise them, all right, we need to attack the Creeks, we'll treat you well, but, you know, fuck these Creeks, and the Cherokee fought with them, and then as we're going to find out later, he, that did not, you know, stop him from massacring them as well. So, I think, I think that's a good message for workers People in power, people on the TV, they're going to get you to do things that are against your own interests, and they, you know, for they won't stop for a second to then turn that against you. So I think that's an important message for workers. That's an important message for citizens of this country that the people in power may use you, or you might be on their side for a moment, but they'll drop you in half a second if their interests change. Um, and also, I want to add, Jackson was also like movie level comically villainous um you know we always see in movies where like the ultimate bad guy will like kill one of his own guys um and that's how we know like okay this is the bad guy of the movie um jackson was on that level um it talks about how he treated the people that fighted fought under him in these battles um howard zinn writes not all his enlisted men were enthusiastic for fighting there were mutinies. The men were hungry. They Their enlistment terms were up. They were tired of fighting and wanted to go home. Jackson wrote to his wife about the once brave and patriotic volunteers sunk to mere whining, complaining, seditionists, and mutineers. When 17-year-old soldier who had refused to clean up his food and threatened his officer with a gun was sentenced to death by a court-martial, Jackson turned down a plea for a community. Uh, commutation of sentence and ordered the execution to proceed he then walked out of earshot of the firing squad um what a great guy also, what a wonderful swell guy um and uh, after leaving the his military post he also gave advice to officers on how to deal with the high rate of desertion um poor whites even if willing to give their lives at first may have discovered the rewards of battle going to the rich because as we're going to get into you know, they, you know, working class people fought these battles, but then only all the rich ended up keeping all the land. Um, so Jackson's um, made a policy that um, um, when people would desert or whimper about uh, battling uh, after the first two attempts, they'd be whipped. And then after the third attempt, they'd be executed. So, you know, if you agree to fight for us, you're going to fight for us or we're going to fucking kill you <laughs> was basically his policy. Sounds and, like freedom you know. to me. <laughs> Right, exactly. God damn it. <laughs> um, 
I also wanted to discuss, because this was the time we've mentioned this word treaties, and this was really kind of a policy that the United States government began to use to, to take lands. Um, from 1814 to 1825, in a series of treaties with Southern Indians, whites took over three-fourths of Alabama and Florida, one-third of Tennessee, one-fifth of Georgia and Mississippi, and parts of Kentucky and North Carolina. Jackson played a key role in those treaties, and according to historians, his friends and relatives received many of the patronage appointments as Indian agents, traders, treaty commissioners, surveys, and land agents. So basically, that was just Jackson giving all important positions that would profit to his friends and relatives. Um, Jackson himself described how the treaties were obtained. We addressed ourselves feelingly to the predominant and governing passion of all Indian tribes, i.e. their um, their fear. We encouraged white squatters to move into Indian lands, then told the Indians the government could not remove the whites, and so so they had better seed the lands or be wiped out um so yeah it's basically like you know we're just gonna tell white people to move in this land when there's you know fighting going on that's provocation then for us to go kill you it's very similar to what we talked about on the israeli occupation of palestine episode yeah, i was thinking where, about this when we when i was reading this chapter yeah exactly it's like all right we're gonna build all our homes on top of where you're already living and of course that's going to cause conflict and then when the conflict does arrive all right well then we can just come and you know fucking kill you it's justification for violence um howardson continues uh jackson began raids into florida arguing it was a sanctuary for escaped slaves um so, so another you know good reason oh slaves are escaping there we better go attack um Florida, he said, was essential to the defense of the United States. It was the classic modern preference to war of conquest. Thus began the Seminole War of 1818, leading to the American acquisition of Florida. It it appears on classroom maps politely as Florida Purchase 1819, but it came from Andrew Jackson's military campaign across the Florida border, burning Seminole So we can thank Andrew Jackson for fucking Florida. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) America's dick, America's uh, penis, or phallus. Did I uh, did I bring this up on the podcast? For I read a tweet once where like, does is the United States the Florida to the to the rest of the world? Yes, yes, <laughs> I think so. Yes. Yeah, it's like yes, yes. I, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Um. So just uh, being a you know hometown from Chicago and Illinois too. Um. The wars actually went that far out west at the time as well. Um, under Jackson, the man, the man he chose to succeed him, Martin Van Buren, also future president, um, forced 70,000 Indians east of the, um, uh, who were currently east of the Mississippi, he f- forced them westward. In the north, there weren't that many, and the Iroquois Confederation of New York stayed, but the Sac and Fox Indians of Illinois were removed after the Black, the Black Hawk War. Um, and you know, if you read the book, you see some Alcan's speeches from Chief Blackhawk, um, about what happened. And that's where Chicago gets the hockey team Blackhawks. So it's kind of funny, you know, like the Redskins had to change their name, but you still have like Blackhawks and Chiefs and stuff who is like literally the people that we <laughs> fucking murdered, murdered and, and well, not stole. To mention the name of like every state in the country. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. No, that that's yeah, the real. cruel part. Like, you know, let's kill these people, destroy their culture, and completely, 
erase them from memory, but then name everything after them. It's like a gross imperialistic empire culture practice. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we shall name the states with the blood of our enemies. So, and what began to ha- what began to happen too was, you know, as, as the way the world's been for a long time, and as it w- is now, we have these borders and these nations, and for the most part, nations, you know, we. <laughs> besides the united states most countries respect the borders of other nations and they you know allow people within that nation are allowed to govern how they want and run their society how they see fit within the limits of capitalism but what's happening right now in in israel and palestine what happened with the native americans in the united states is we basically said we don't recognize your nations we're going to, you have to live by our rules. And if you don't, you will be subject to the same penalties that we would subject our, you know, our citizens to. And Howard Zinn writes, um, the proper tactic had now been found. The Indians would not be forced to go west, but if they chose to stay, they would have to abide by state laws, which destroyed their, their tribal and personal rights and made them subject to endless harassment and invasion by white settlers um, if they left, however, the federal government would give them financial support, <laughs> financial support, <laughs> wink, wink, and promise them lands beyond the Mississippi. So it was basically, you know, live by our rules. And, and you're kind of starting, you know, similar to, 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 you know, black people being slaves, where you, you're playing by our rules, but you're not given any of the tools that most, you know, white citizens are given. And then so we can change the rules at any time. And also promised them to land east of the Miss, I mean west of the Mississippi. Um, there was already people living on those lands, right, right. <laughs> um, so it's like you're promising other people shit to you know like this. Like, I'm like, all right, you know, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you Brian's house, even though you're like, uh, I still <laughs> live in this house. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. We'll right. find some other place for you. We got this trailer for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Don't complain, goddammit, or we'll give you smallpox. So as a part of seizing the land, you know, there were these actual battles that took place, and after everyone was killed, then they would take the land. But also, there were just white people just flooding into lands that were Native Americans. Um, the white invader invaders seized land and stock, forced Indians to sign leases, beat up Indians who protested, sold, sold alcohol to weaken resistance, and killed game, which Indians needed for food. But to put all the blame on white mobs would be to ignore the central role played by planter interests and government policy decisions. Food shortages, whiskey, and military tax began a process of tribal disintegration. Violence by Indians upon other Indians increased. Treaties made under pressure and by deceptions broke up Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw tribal lands into individual holdings, making each person a prey to contractors, speculators, and politicians. The Chickasaws sold their land individually at good prices and went west without much suffering. The Creeks and and Choctaws remained on their individual plots, but great numbers of them were defrauded by land companies. So it's kind of... 
you know, already showing because they didn't have before white people showed up, there wasn't this concept of private property. This is a capitalism construct. When you need to sell things, land becomes a resources. All of nature becomes a commodity. So you can already see it's already seeping into these Native Amer Native nations, you know, way of thinking. They're beginning to see, you know, like, okay, well, at least if I can get this plot of land, I'll be safe. So, you know, it's already the seeds of, you know, capitalism, capitalism dividing them were, were already beginning to be planted. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to... I don't know how to say this. I don't want, you know, I'm going to read examples in this chapter. There were white people who resisted Indian removal, as it was called. And I don't want to point that out to, you know, see like, hey, see, white people aren't that bad. I want to point that out to that it's people's interests that, you know, financial motivations that cause them to do evil things. So it was really, you know, the, the, he talks about examples. There were a lot of white people that lived in peace, you know, poor white people who lived in peace with Native Americans and who were even friends with them. But then you had these land speculators who wanted, their, you know, land for plantations and things like that were really the the driving force um, that kind of promoted the, this land grab. So Howard Zinn says, um, just before Jackson became president in the 1820s, um, after the War of 1812 and the Creek War, the Southern Indians and the whites had settled down, often very close to one another, and were living in peace in a natural environment which seemed to have enough for all of them. They began to see common problems, friendships developed, white men were allowed to visit the Indian communities, and Indians were often guests in white homes. Frontier figures like Davy Crockett and Sam Houston came out of this setting, and both, unlike Jackson, became lifelong friends of the Indian. The forces that led removal did not come from the poor white frontiersmen who were neighbors of the Indians. They came from the industrialization and commerce, the growth of populations, of railroads and cities, the rise in value of land, and the greed of businessmen. So it's just important, you know, to point out that, you know, similar to slavery, you know, it was only 1% of the population that owned slaves. It was the, the uber wealthy. And this kind of push for this crazy expansion and stealing all this land really came from the wealthiest, you know, sectors of society. But it's not too much different from kind of what we see nowadays. Um, me and you don't own Apple. Uh, we don't own Amazon. It, it's a few wealthy individuals who are most likely born into wealth because this is misnomer in America. If you work hard, one day you'll be a billionaire. And that might be true for Oprah and Jay-Z. And um, well, I guess J.K. Rowling is not from the United States. She's from Britain. But um, th those are, you know, a... a Point zero 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 one percent of like the elites in this world. Most folks who are born into these classes are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So, uh, the, in these powerful corporate conglomerates, the system allows them to. I mean, they write the rules. So, <laughs> and I wanted to point out because this uh, this just reminded me of current day America politics, because there's always it seems like there's always, you know, the Bernie Sanders who seems to be on surface seems to be fighting for what's right. But at the end of the day, the money always wins. And this was, you know, perfect example. These battles have been going on, but soon Indian removal, as it was called, became law. Um, so in Congress, the North was in general against the removal bill. 
the South was for it because the South were the wealthy people were there who wanted the land. So it passed the House 102 to 97. It passed the Senate narrowly. It did not mention force, but provided for helping the Indians to move. What it implied was that if they did not, they were without protection, without funds, and at the mercy of the states. And there was this one senator, Theodore, I can't even pronounce his last name, Franklin of New Jersey, who told the Senate de- um, debating removal, we, were cr- we have crowded the tribes upon a few miserable acres on our southern frontier. It is all that is left to them of their once boundless forest, and still, like the horse leech, our insistent cupidity cries, give, 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 sir, do the obligation of justice change do the obligations of justice change the color with the color of our skin so that kind of just reminds me you know even with like all these healthcare debates and stuff you have this one politician you know bernie sam sanders example for healthcare like people need healthcare but at the end of the day it just seems like they that voice never wins out it's always the fucking evil you know money interests that prevail and i don't know that kind of just struck me um you know as a parallel today and then always gets the and, and and the amazing thing is how the evil money interest will always will always find a way to get a critical mass of everyday regular people who really won't barely benefit from their land grab or whatever their wealth building um because yes even though uh we we saw the friendships develop between um poor and working working white frontiersmen and people and in the indigenous communities but that was all kind of hijacked when the the government and the corporate interests align, which they always do because one watches the other. Uh, you can look at listen to our libertarian episode to deep dive into that whole relationship. But um, it, it comes to taking taking the land for for resources to commercial and develop and to cut down all the trees. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's a great quote um, from the uh, Cree Nation. Uh, after, after the last tree is cut down, only after the last river has been poisoned, only after the last fish has been eating, only then will man or humans find that you can't eat money. Mm-hmm. And, and we are approaching kind that of, very quickly. <laughs> yes, and, and, and this kind of is the start of that downward spiral of um conquest and conquer i mean it's always been through human history but this is kind of like the acceleration point um of, of a complete genocide of a group of people um even the romans who were ruthless or were not to the point of completely genocidally wiping out people and, and forcing them to remove from their homelands usually they would just conquer people and add and add put like a roman senator in that land but the americans we, this country, developed something even more sinister, you know, along with chattel slavery. Just like, let's just remove these people completely from their land and relocate them to some shitty part of the land. And and if we find out some something is of value in that land, we, we can move them again. So we'll just keep breaking every treaty we have. <laughs> and to Steve's point about following Native Americans and their resistance uh, to the system and for environmental justice, 
I, I think we should be following them because at least their culture has some resemblance of wanting to live in balance with nature. You know, in Western society, it's taught to us nature is something to be conquered and to be controlled rather and tamed. Than, and tamed rather than for something to, you know, for us to be a part of um, and to be connected to. And that we, you know, we can't just go around killing everything because we're killing ourselves Um that's not even, you know, in Western, in Western culture, if it doesn't make you money, it, it's just not done. And, you know, I, I do always speak of the evil of capitalism, but you see how evil it is when you think of capitalism about, a, under capitalism, a forest doesn't have any value until it's cut down. That's the value of a forest to capitalism. But forests are the fucking, our lungs. We need their, <laughs> we need that air to breathe. So this, this just runaway destroy everything so we can profit from it is you know it's a snowball that's building faster and faster and i do find it inspiring native you know native it wasn't until i took a native american history class in college that i realized how different we could be living and that you know because it's very easy to think how things are is how, how your culture is is how it has to be but i've read all these other cultures and how they behaved and i'm thinking you know these are literally hundreds of thousands of people that live this way so it it was inspiring to see different ways of being um, that certainly were, you know, for you know, as we've discussed, it's not that Native Americans were perfect people before white people showed up. They had their own problems. But at the very least, they definitely lived more in harmony with nature and and valued, um, you know, nature's things, you know, using every part of the animal rather than shooting it and putting its head on your wall, you know, shit like that. So, yeah. Um so I, I wanted to end, you know, he kind of ends this chapter and I wanted to end this episode too by talking about the different ways that the different nations handled what was happening to them. And so he starts with the um, Choctaws, um, Choctaws. And so what he, what he writes is, uh, now, that, now the pressure began on the tribes one by one. The Choctaws did not want to leave, but 50 of their delegates were offered secret bribes of money and land and the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek was signed. And goddamn, man, I hate some fucking rats <laughs> who fucking go against their people, you know? But, yeah. hey, you know, just like they I They always find them. They always find them, every yeah, group of people. Exactly. There's always somebody who can be bought, you know? Um, it's just so fucking frustrating. It's like, goddamn, those fucking 50 motherfuckers. <laughs> but uh, uh, Choctaw land east of the Mississippi was ceded to the United States in return for financial help, quote-unquote, in leaving compensation for property left behind, food for the first year in their new homes, and guaranteed that they would never again be required to move. (laughs) Um, For 20,000 Choctaws in Mississippi, though most of them hated the treaty, the pressure now became irresistible. Um, Whites, including liquor dealers and swindlers, came swarming onto their lands. The state passed a law making it a crime for Choctaws to try to persuade one another on the matter of removal, uh, which is fucking hilarious. In late 1831, 13,000 Choctaws began the long journey west to a land and climate totally different from what they knew. Uh, Marshaled by guards, hustled by agents, they were being herded on the way to an unknown and unwelcome destination like a flock of sick sheep. They went on ox wagons, on horses, on foot, 
They were to be ferried across the Mississippi River. The Army was supposed to organize the trek, but it turned over its job to private contractors who charged the government as much as possible and gave the Indians as little as possible. Everything was disorganized, food disappeared, and hunger came. Um, a historian writes, The long, somber columns of groaning ox wagons, driven herds, and and strangling crowds on foot inched on westward through the swamps and forests across the rivers and hills in their crawling struggle from the lush lowlands of the Gulf to the arid plains of the West. In a, ki in a kind of death spasm, one of the last vestiges of the original Indian world was being dismembered and it was collapsing remnants jammed bodily into a new alien world. The first winter migration was one of the coldest on record and be people began to die of pneumonia. In the summer, a major cholera epidemic hit Mississippi and Ch Choctaws died by the hundreds. The 7,000 Ch Choctaws left behind who had refused to go choosing sub subjugation over death. Many of their descendants still live in Mississippi to this day. So I don't think we can appreciate, you know, when you live off the land and live in harmony with nature as much as these tribes did, they asking them to move is like asking us to switch planets now. You know, that's like basically someone telling us, OK, you're going to go live on Mars, figure it out. They they have no idea how to live. And, and also when you force people to migrate like that like you know like he just said the the amount of disease and stuff that would spread through because you're in completely you know new situation and new conditions that your body isn't used to handling so and not to mention coming into contact with new people that you probably haven't come in contact with before right yeah right exactly um yeah so um that was the um choctaws now i wanted to discuss the cherokee um, and the Cherokee had been moving, a, uh, had been forced to move a while. Another example of um, the United States breaking its treaties. Um, so the originally, um, Ch the Cherokee, the Cherokees migrated westward into the beautiful wooded country of Arkansas, but there the Indians found themselves almost immediately surrounded and penetrated by white settlers, hunters, and trappers. These West Cherokees now had to move farther west, and this time to arid land, land too barren for white settlers. The federal government signed a treaty with them in 1828 and announced that a new territory as a permanent home which shall under the most solemn guarantee of the United States be and remain forever theirs. It was still another lie, and the plight of the West, Western Cherokees became known as the three fort been known to the three-fourths of the Cherokees who were still in the East, being pressured by the white man to move on. With 17,000 Cherokees surrounded by 900,000 whites in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee, the Cherokees decided that survival required adaption to the white man's world. They became farmers, blacksmiths, carpenters, masoners, and owner of property. A census in 1826 showed that 22,000 cattle, 7,600 horses, 46,000 swine, 726 looms, 2,500 spinning wheels, 172 wagons, 10 sawmills, and 62 blacksmill shops, and 18 schools. Um, what was also interesting to me is Cherokees even, you know, to bend to their new surroundings, even um, change their language. Um, the Cherokee language, heavily poetic, metaphorical, beautifully expressive, supplemented by dance, drama, and ritual, had always been a language of voice and gesture. 
Now their chief invented a written language, which thousands of Cherokees learned. The Cherokees' newly established legislative council voted money for a printing press. Um, so, you know, you can already... So they, they were basically, you know, they had moved a little bit and then were basically trying to adapt and just and assimilate. Yeah, and possible, assimilate. As much as possible. Exactly. And it still didn't uh, work out for them in the long run. Right, right. Exactly. Um, and what really changed... Um, was a lot of you know some gold had been uh <laughs> had been discovered on their land which was even you know if if white people didn't want the land bad enough that already you know that made it worse um and and now that um Cherokees were in Georgia and as I talked about earlier the United States basically had a policy where if you choose to stay then you're going to live under our laws um, so they, the Cherokee Nation, who lived a lot in Georgia, they faced a, a set of laws passed by Georgia. Their lands were taken. Their government, which they had tried to adapt to white people, was abolished. All meetings were prohibited. Cherokees advising, advising others not to migrate were to be imprisoned. Cherokees could not testify in court against any whites. Cher- Cherokees could not dig for gold recently discovered on the land. A delegation of them protesting the federal gov- government received this reply from Jackson's new Secretary of War, Eaton. If you will go to the setting sun, there you will be happy. There you can remain in peace and quietness, so long as the waters run and the oaks grow, the country shall be guaranteed to you, and no white man shall be permitted to settle near you. So basically, you know, is get the fuck out of the way and you'll be fine. Is, is basically what exactly exactly yeah. that was some cold hearted shit. You see the horizon uh, over there? Part. Walk that way. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. And keep right. fucking walking. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and so you know, and, and similar to with slavery, this kind of happened where, you know, as this was happening, white people were resist. There were a lot of white people resisting. Um, the removal of the Native Americans and fighting against it. So then the government came down on them and started passing things to so that they weren't allowed. Similar how to, you know, where whites were trying to help slaves, how that would start to get punished. So um, Georgia passed a law making it a crime for a white person to stay in Indian territory without taking an oath to the state of Georgia. When the white missionaries in Cherokee territory declared their sympathy um, openly for the Cherokees to stay, to stay, a Georgia militia entered the territory in the spring of 1831 and arrested three of the missionaries, including Samuel Worcester. They were released when they claimed protection as federal employees. Immediately, the Jackson admin- administration took away Worcester's job, and the military moved again that summer, arresting 10 missionaries as well as the white printer of the Cherokee Phoenix. They were beaten, chained, and forced to march 35 miles uh, a day to a county jail. A jury tried them, found them guilty. Nine were released when they agreed to swear allegiance to Georgia's law, but Samuel Worcester and Elijah Butler, who refused to grant legitimacy to the laws repressing the Cherokees, were sentenced to four years at hard labor. This was appealed to the Supreme Court, and in Worcester versus Georgia, John Marshall, for the majority, declared that Georgia law on which Worcester was jailed violated the treaty with the Cherokees, which by the Constitution was binding on the states. He ordered Worcester freed. Georgia ignored him, and President Jackson refused to enforce the court order. So, 
that just reminds me of immortal techniques what's a good is a law if you can't rewrite it so exactly people in power when they have war you know this was a this was an order from the fucking supreme court and and jackson was just like yeah fuck that shit we're just gonna do what we want we're the ones with guns so yeah well it's just it's just as ridiculous now as the people who are still on um social media uh, harping about oh it was ralph nader in 2000 that lost bush to the election and it was really the supreme court even though gore had um won the popular vote and we saw the same thing happen in um 2016 so those in power can you know write the laws and then be like well we really meant the popular vote but we were just joking about that so it was like we really had this treaty with you all but yeah you got gold on your land so we're gonna take it you got oil on your land we're gonna take it we want this pipeline to come through your land as we do in current times to our indigenous brothers and sisters and we're just gonna expand and take that shit because um you know we say so and we can just you know rewrite the laws because we have all the power and you have you're just a little person so it really shows you how the, the legal system in this country has always um who would who is it benefited um and if and brian if me and you you know violated any laws especially set by the powers that be we'd be thrown in jail swiftly but the president can be like ah fuck that shit just like how they go to war like, oh we're gonna bomb this country well we're not at war technically we're just i'm just sending a million troops but yeah, we're not at war. Right, right. The war is over. We'll just send some drones, but that's not war. You know, guess we'll send some commandos, but it's not war. I don't need Congress. I'm the commander in chief. Trust me. And that's the history that's hidden from us is all the all the not wars <laughs> that the United States has been engaged with. And, and, and let's be there. honest, the, the what happened with the indigenous people in this country was a war. It was just a one sided war. Yeah, a war kind of implies that there's two sides fighting when really this is more of a massacre. And not to say, see, that's the thing that sucks is poor whites were victim of, you know, so like as we discussed, it was mostly the people who were going to own the land who fought most to eradicate the the Native Americans and move them. But it did happen. The Native Americans, in resisting this, they did go to white settlements and massacre everyone. So you do have these situations where there was probably, you know, a white blacksmith just doing his job, trying to feed his family. And then Native Americans come through and massacre his whole family and kill everyone. And it's like, yes, they so, you know, even even though the the white American who thinks that, you know, Andrew Jackson is on his side, a man of the people He's victim of his genocide, too, because his family would get killed. And, you know, he doesn't get any compensation. Andrew Jackson doesn't give a fuck if some blacksmith's family gets killed, you know. So he, that's what so, sucks so bad. I, I, day, it reminds me of that, that Jimi Hendrix song, Machine Gun, and, and talking about, like, Vietnam and kind of the soldier, lonely soldier's journey into like, this Vietnam War. But he has a line in there that says, evil man make me kill you. Evil man makes me kill evil man makes you kill me and i always think about that with, with kind of how these situations are i guess the powerful who divide you know the masses and put the pit them against each other even to the point of you know them massacring each other and you know they laugh all you know they benefit and laugh all the way to the bank um all right so we got two more groups that i want two more nations i want to talk about um the next one being the creek um, the Creeks had been fighting for their land ever since the years of Columbus against Spanish, English, French, and Americans. 
but by 1832 they had been reduced to a small area in Alabama, while the population of Alabama was growing fast was now over 300,000. On the basis of extravagant promises from the federal government, Creek delegates in Washington signed the Treaty of Washington, agreeing to removal beyond the Mississippi. They gave up 5 million acres with the provision that 2 million of these would go to individual Creeks, who could then either sell or remain in in Alabama with federal protection. Of course, that turned out not to be true, but and also a white invasion of Creek's land began. Looters, land seekers, defrauders, whiskey sellers, thugs, driving thousands of Creeks from their homes into the swamps and forests. The federal government did nothing to stop this. Instead, it it negotiated a new treaty providing the prompt uh, emigration west, managed by the Creeks themselves, financed by the national, national government. And similar to other situations, oftentimes, even though this was supposed to be organized, um, you know, by the U.S. government, it was really just turned over to private contractors, which is um, a lot of what you, uh, you know, see happening <laughs> today with our our, uh, our wars that we uh, that we fight. Um, so and so what ended up happening, it says, but by 1836, both state and federal officials decided that the creeks must go using a pretext, uh, some attacks by desperate creeks on white settlers. It was declared that the Creek Nation, by making war, had forfeited its treaty rights. So just as we discussed, you know, they resist their their situation and that's used, you know, as a as a reason to remove them. Um, the army would now force it to migrate west. Fewer than a hundred creeks had been involved in the war, but a thousand but a thousand had fled into the woods, afraid of white reprisals. An army of eleven thousand was sent after them. The creeks did not resist. No shots were fired, but and they surrendered. Those creeks, presumed by the army to be rebels or thin, or sympathizers, were assembled. The men. Um, chained together to march west under military guard, their women and children children trailing after them. Creek communities were involved, uh, were invaded by military detachments, the inhabitants driven to assembly points and marched westward in batches of two or three thousand. No talk of compensation for their land or property left behind. Private contractors were made were made for the march private contracts were made for the march the same kind that had failed the choctaws again delays and lack of food shelter clothing blankets and medical attention again old rotting steamboats and ferries crowded beyond capacity taking them across the mississippi by midwinter um stumbling processions of more than 15,000 creeks stretched from border to border across arkansas Starvation and sickness began to cause large numbers of deaths. The passage of the exiles could be disguised from afar, but by the howling trails of wolf packs and circling flocks of buzzards. So literally, conditions were so horrible that animals began to follow them, waiting for the dead. Um, 800 Creek men had volunteered to help the United States Army fight the Seminoles in Florida, in return for a promise that their families could remain in Alabama, protected by the federal government until the men returned. This promise was not kept. The Creek families were attacked by land-hungry white marauders, robbed, driven from their homes, their women raped. Then the army, claiming it was for their safety, removed them from Creek country to a concentration camp on Mobile Bay. Hundreds died from their lack of food and from sickness. 
When the Warriors returned from the Seminole War, they had their family. They and their families were hustled west. Moving through New Orleans, they encountered a yellow fever plague. They crossed the Mississippi. Six hundred and eleven Indians crowded onto the age ste- onto age steamers, uh, onto an age steamer called the Manmouth. It went down in the Mississippi River, River and three hundred and eleven people died. Four of Four of them, the children of the Indian commander of the Creek Volunteers in Florida. So literally, while Creek warriors were helping the U.S. government fight the Seminoles, um, they were removing their family and just causing unseen you know, death. And when they got back, it's like, yeah, you're moving too. That was some so, cold-hearted shit when I read that too. Like, wow. The coldest, just, that's why... This myth that we live in a republic or a democracy or anything, we I hate to say it, but the evidence shows me that we live under gangster rules and gangsters behave like you know behave like gangsters. And I don't know how you could look at events like this and call it anything but just you know cold hearted gangster shit. You know, it's, it's called freedom, Brian, and we have it. <laughs> you have it. I have it. Steve has it. You need if you don't like America, you can leave. and since i brought them up the seminoles you know since we you know we have this exam all the other examples i just mentioned of native american nations trying in their own ways to work with the u.s government um the seminoles were the group that actually decided to fight from the very beginning uh with florida now belonging to the united states seminole territory were open to american land grabbers they moved down into northern florida and down the fertile coastal strip in 1823, the Treaty of Camp Maltry was signed by a few Seminoles who got large personal land holdings in North Florida and agreed that all Seminoles would leave Northern Florida and every coastal area and move into the interior. This meant withdrawing into the swamps of Central Florida where they could not grow food, where even wild game could not survive. The pressure to move west out of Florida mounted, and in 1834, Seminole leaders were assembled, and the U.S. Indian and the U.S. Indian agent told them that they must move west. Here was some of the replies of the Seminoles at the meeting: "We are all made by the Great Father, and all and all are like his children. We all came from the same mother, and we and were suckled at the same breast. Therefore, we are brothers, and as brothers, should treat together and." an amicable way your talk is a good one but my people cannot say they will go we are not willing to do so if their tongues say yes their hearts cry no and call them liars if suddenly we tear our hearts from the homes around which they are twined our heartstrings will snap the indian agent managed to get 15 chiefs and sub chiefs to sign a removal treaty the u.s senate promptly ratified it and the War Department began making preparations for the migration. Violence between white, whites and Seminoles now erupted. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can read the book to read about how horrifying this was. But, you know, there were casualties on both sides. Um, but I, th- you know, think it's safe to say that, you know, one side was definitely had more, more firepower than the other. Um, the war went on for years. The army enlisted other Indians to fight the Seminoles, as we had mentioned, but that didn't work work either. The adaption of the Seminole to his environment was to be matched only by the crane or the alligator. 
It was an eight-year war. It cost 20 million and 1,500 American lives. Finally, in 1840s, the Seminoles began to get tired. They were a tiny group against a huge nation with great resources. They asked for truce, but when they but when they went forward under truce flags, they were arrested again and again. In 1837, um, Osekola, under the flag of truce, had been seized and put in iron, irons. They died of illness in prison. The war permeated throughout. So it was just, you know, the, even though they had guerrilla warfare and knew the land better than the whites, just the sheer, you know, read the book Guns and Germs and Steel, just the, the sheer firepower. Oh, yeah. Um, they just couldn't match. The last group, I, the last group I wanted to mention, um, I wanted to mention was about the, you know, what is commonly known as uh, the Trail of Tears, because, um, <laughs> you know, this was one of the the greatest horrifying events in in American history. It happened to the Cherokee, and what's what's kind of crazy is the Cherokee. Um, had kind of been they had been resisting but they were kind of they didn't actually take up arms and they were one of the less violent and yet they still you know just had these horrible things happen to them yeah um so um it, howard zinn writes some cherokees had apparently given up on nonviolence. three chiefs who had signed the removal treaty were found dead but the seventeen thousand cherokees were soon rounded up and crowded into stockades on October 1st, 1838, the first detachment set out in what was to be known as the Trail of Tears. As they moved westward, they began to die of sickness, of drought, of heat, and exposure. There were 645 wagons and people marching alongside. Survivors years later told of halting at the edge of the Mississippi in the middle of winter and the river running full of ice. Hundreds of hundreds of sick and dying penned up penned up in the wagons or stretched upon the ground. Grant Foreman, the leading authority of on Indian removal, estimates that during the confinement in the stockade or on the march westward, four thousand Cherokees died. So it's just, and you know, you can read. I remember in like my history classes, there's books just about the Trail of Tears. But oh yeah. I don't think after reading and looking at what happened on events like that, there is no difference between those and the concentration camps and the Holocaust. Oh, no. People were not provided food, adequate food. They were not provided adequate shelter. They were not given medical treatment in any way. They were forced onto these marches. So it's really just the United States' own, you know, personal Holocaust. And I don't bring these things up to... You know, obviously none of us living participated in this, but we can't bury our heads in the sand and then not accept what happened and accept what and, and learn about why they happened. Because if we do that, then they'll just continue to happen because capitalism is still chugging along today. So the same motivations for the leaders, you know, continue to this day. Now, uh, the Trail of Tears is, is perhaps one of the, the low points in American history. And the, the, the human toll, uh, the Cherokee Nation, you, I live in Georgia. This used to be part of that nation. And, and now they're relegated to in the Southwest. And I believe um, their reservation is in Oklahoma and, you know, far west from their ancestral lands. And when we talk about land back, I, I, I say you know, we can sit there and honor the, the ancestral lands, but 
and, 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 and land recognition, land acknowledgments, as they call it, and in the so in the nonprofit space. But we can talk about land back and how we've taken this country has taken their land and and committed genocide, which continues to this day. And I will also speak uh, because we talk about kind of the tragedy of, of this of these things is the resistance that continues to this day um, across racial lines um, of, of resistance as we saw brilliantly play out with Standing Rock in the, um, you know, just four or five years ago. Uh, well, I, I guess that was a little longer than four or five years ago. That's probably like six years ago. Um, but we've seen, you know, moments of that in, in the still ongoing, ongoing resistance, even in, um, in Brazil, which I, I call the United States of Latin America because it is. There's massive resistance uh, being put up by the indigenous communities there to protect the Amazon because the Amazon is being destroyed. Um, so um, with climate change, we're going to have to learn about the old ways and maintaining things. Even now, what's going on out West is, you know, the groups, groups of indigenous people who lived out West uh, did control burns um, to, you know, balance the land. And, and we stopped doing that years and years ago because it's like, well, we know it's best. We're smart. Um, but these sacred practices um, had their utility. And some folks who are looking to kind of live more sustainably is saying we need to adapt these practices. So all that knowledge, all those, all that potential uh, destroyed on its trail of tears. Although what happened with the Seminoles, um, the Seminoles, you know, some argue well they own slaves um, and actually black slaves and, and free black um, men and women and, and slaves would, 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 would go, escape slaves would go live amongst the Seminoles. But Slaves in their community uh, were incorporated in the community and, you know, became members of the community. They would buy their way out of slavery. And it wasn't this racial caste system. And there is a, a, a legacy of black Seminoles <laughs> who um, live in this part of the country where I met Georgia, Florida, mostly, mostly Florida. So these history of these uh, two oppressed groups coming together um, and also fighting resistance against the, the U.S. government to maintain their their sovereignty so there's always been resistance throughout all this trauma throughout this horrible throughout this genocide that continues all the way till to this moment in time that we live in now um so that part gives me hope but this is always heavy to digest and it's really a shame that we don't we're not taught taught this at this depth in american you know schools high schools elementary schools um, because people are like, well, this will make the kids feel bad and make us look racist. And we don't want that. We want to tell them that America is great. And America can be great. It has potential. But if we don't learn our true history, we're going to keep repeating it. And we'll just go down the same slippery slope of horror that we've been going down. And a lot of good growth comes from pain. I mean, even just like think about like working out or exercising in the moment, it hurts. You know, your muscles are sore, you're tired. It's pain, but it's good pain. It's pain that has meaning. And the depressing, you know, learning the depressing parts of history, I think, is the same thing. Yeah, it would make kids sad. It made me sad as fuck. It should make you sad. It's fucking horrifying. But you can learn from that pain to start changing your behavior. So, 
I mean, I, the only reason we're not taught taught this is because rich people don't want us to be taught this because they want things to remain the same. They don't want things to change. But we're reaching a point in human history. I mean, you know, human suffering has been chugging along, but we really are reaching a point where the old systems are not. We're going to die. We're either going to change or we're going to die. Um, yeah, and, it's evolution. Adapt or die. Exactly. And we're, it seems, you know, with every day, just... The more and more you see, you know, fucking Canada's on fire, Australia's on fire, as places flooding everywhere, like Tahoe, I think I saw is on fire. So, yep. yeah, it's, uh, and, and I well, read it's already th- at the point where a lot of people are going to die, regardless of how quickly we change at this point. Yeah, true. But we're, we've already kind of gone past that hump, I think, but we could try to salvage as much as we can and then hopefully build something better. Exactly. And I, I, I read something this week that you were talking about, Lornette, where um, native groups in Brazil are mounted, are grouping together in ways they never have before to resist uh, the destruction of the Amazon. And, uh, you know, do whatever you can, <laughs> people who are listening to this, to support them. Um, because isn't it, doesn't the Amazon produce like 40% of the oxygen that we breathe or something like that? Wow. So. Well, not only that, is all those trees and life there, they're like yeah, all those creatures. so much of the carbon. Yeah, and, and not to mention all the, the, the creatures that inhabit that land, the indigenous people that inhabit that land, uh, not just for the the purpose of removing carbon from the atmosphere, is just kind of a vital ecosystem. And most of those vital um, rainforests across the world have been you know devastated, um, either by uh, grazing or planting of monocultural cultural um, plants like palm oil in the in Southeast Asia, so you know, you these, the these stro- yeah go ahead. I was gonna say you also have the loss of biodiversity, which a lot of that stuff would probably be great medicines if we only knew about them. Yeah, not That's to mention the biodiversity of creatures that d- don't exist anywhere else in the world, but in those regions, and as we destroy their habitat. Um, they go extinct and some creatures that will never that that exist will be disappeared before humans ever know know their of their existence and, and like you said steve um the, med, the medicinal um values that in those regions and it should be us to kind of keep what's left of those lands but as always um greed is funneling you know for timber for logging for you know cattle to you know sell people beef in China or, you know, in, in Mexico somewhere or deport, you know, or France, it, it's, it's always going down. It's a system that is all based on consumption and infinite consumption on a finite planet breeds, um, total collapse. Yeah, it's, it's eventually. doomed to fail. Yeah. It's, the... it's not, it's not sustainable. It's not like the earth is infinite. And, and the thing is the earth will, you know, will balance itself out. The problem is humans won't be, here to see that because you know the <laughs> earth won't be able to, to maintain us or sustain us the earth will shake us off like a bad case of fleas yes surface nuisance <laughs> <laughs> shout out to george carlin one yeah. of the real ogs that's the um, hilarious part though hilarious in a morbid way how a lot of the land that's being torn down in the amazon is being cleared to make a uh, grazing land for cattle so we can eat beef so i'm like wow we're literally 
suffocating ourselves so we can eat a hamburger. <laughs> like that's... Even more than that, we're suffocating ourselves so we can feed ourselves poison. Yeah, right, right. Because exactly. that's like, I mean, a little bit of meat's not bad, but if you're eating burgers all day long, that's poison to your body. Yeah. And hey, look here, you ain't going to take my goddamn burger, right? Joe Biden. <laughs> and you hippie liberals take Carl's away my Jr. burger. I'm going hey, to Carl Jr. and get a, as a, get a burger. And it's going to be a hot girl with a bikini on eating that burger while shooting an AK-47 <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a Thompson machine gun because freedom, goddammit. Yeah, but no, um, we got to bring a little light, lightheartedness to such a sobering topic and and understand that there has been resistance in the past and there's still resistance now. So it's not like the uh, indigenous people of the country took this uh, force and lamb remove um, with with ease or um, or without resistance, it was resistance throughout, and it, our Native American brother and sisters uh, continue to fight to this day, and we stand in solidarity with them here at Cluster Culture. Absolutely, and don't think because you don't because your small act of resistance doesn't have a victory in the moment. Don't think that doesn't mean it has value. Sometimes you're resistant is just to keep the flame of revolution alive in any small way until future generations can take it and expand on it. So a lot of the times you're going to be fighting, you know, losing battles and you will lose. But that doesn't mean, you know, you might lose the battle, but you don't lose the war. And sometimes we have to fight and resist just to keep hope alive for future generations. And just like Chris Hedges said, you know, I don't fight fascism because I think I'll win. I fight fascism because it's fascism. So doing the right thing and and standing you know with people who are you know what you know in your heart is right is its own victory even if you never see any kind of material or tangible kind of victory in the moment yep all right guys anything else nope all right well thank you guys thank you both uh thank you everyone for listening don't forget to check out lord Nett's book even the faders and his blog the evolving man uh the evolving man project um, also, don't forget to check out our bi-weekly episodes. We just had a, a fun science edition, so that's actually a fun, uplifting topic. Um, on the next one, uh, I think Lornette and I are going to be discussing the prison system. So, so brought you up to a happy place with science. I'm going to slam you right back down to reality with the prison system. <laughs> yeah, so, look, look out for that. And, uh, and uh, Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Steve. All right. All right. Good night. Thanks again. Remember to question everything. Any views or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian, Lornette, and Steve and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian, Lornette, and Steve may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.